Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you uh, that your word is truth and that you have promised to strengthen your church through your word. And so, Lord, we pray that you do that good gift in us right now, that your spirit would work in us. We pray that Christ would be glorified as a perfect and good Savior, and that our faith would be placed only in him. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you uh, to turn to Isaiah chapter 42. We're going to be reading all of uh, the, this chapter, all of Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42. We'll be reading it uh, in parts as we go through it, but just I want to give a bit of a, a summary here of the passage and therefore what the point and the purpose of this text is and, and what it is seen to be in, in the church's history to see this. You're going to see actually in verses 1 to 9, uh, you're going to see that it's going to be talking about, the Lord is going to be talking about his servant. He starts by saying, behold my servant. We see this in verses 1 through 9. And we're going to see that this servant is the coming Messiah. And that the words associated with these servant, they're not so much as commands as they are promises. I will do these things. This is who he is. You know, the, word, the Lord is going to use the word my servant in verses 1 through 9. And that's going to be talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah. But then you're going to see in verses 18 to the end of the chapter, he also uses that phrase, my servant. And in that part, in that part, he is talking specifically about his people. This is a lovely, a lovely text to show us that the Savior of God's people is a responsibility-fulfilling Savior. Often we think about God as our Savior, or we want God as our Savior, as somebody who will merely be somebody who rescues us from our enemies, to do something for us. And this isn't bad, to long for a Savior to do something for us, but the Lord presents a sweeter Savior than that. Instead, it is a Savior who does something instead of us a responsibility-fulfilling Savior. God called his people, Israel, he called them his servant. And then he gives them a Savior who he also calls his servant, who does the things that they were supposed to do, but either unwilling or unable to do this. The Lord doesn't, he doesn't withdraw the purpose for which he created us, or the responsibilities that he has given as the people of God. He doesn't withdraw them. That's not the mercy he gives. What he does is he gives us a savior who does it in our place, which is why Israel could be called the servant of the Lord, but also their savior could be called the servant of the Lord. Let's look at the first four verses. The first four verses. And here, I hope you can see this, um, verses 1 to 9 are talking about the Messiah, the coming Messiah, who is going to be 700 years before he comes yet, in this passage. But the first four verses are talking about the servant, and then it changes perspective, and then verses uh, 5 through 9 are going to be talking to the servant. 
So let's look at the first four verses talking about the servant, about the Messiah. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has accomplished justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Hope you can see this first point with me in the text. The Lord has a chosen servant whom he delights in. And this is talking about the Messiah, the coming servant of the Lord. We see that the soul of God delights in him. My soul delights in him. This coming Messiah would be somebody who, has, who perfectly expresses what God delights in. He would have God's own character. God would look in him and see perfectly everything that he delights in, this servant also delights in. He'd have God's perfect character. He'd be, have God's perfect love, God's perfect faithfulness. He would see the fear of God. He would see this person only thinking something that is beautiful if God thinks it is beautiful. And he would see everything that God finds as repulsive, this person would also find as repulsive. He would delight in what God finds delightful. He would perfectly, perfectly express God's character. The Lord Jesus fulfilled this, didn't he? Remember at his baptism, he was baptized by John the Baptist. And what did the Lord say? What did the Father say of the Son when John baptized him? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. He repeats something very similar in Matthew 17. Near the end of Jesus' ministry, roughly three years later, Jesus goes up on a mountain with three of his disciples, and the Lord there appears again, and Jesus is transfigured, his glory is revealed, and the Father says this again. He is well pleased with his Son. Now, it's not just the Lord audibly speaking these things about Jesus in front of many witnesses, while Jesus was there. Did you know that even the people of the earth, even his enemies, conceded these points as well? Jesus had a trial before his death. He was put on trial, and there were offered sums of money given to anybody. Can anybody bring an accusation against this man? Tell me, show me, please, we want proof that he has broken God's law. We want evidence that he's not the Messiah. We want evidence that he is not the man with God, with whom God is perfectly pleased. Something that would show that his heart isn't perfectly God's heart. And they couldn't come up with anything. The best they could do is that he claimed to be God, which would have been a sin if he wasn't actually God. They also claimed that he, he said he would, if the temple was destroyed, he would rebuild it in three days, talking about his own body, which of course would have been sinful to say if he couldn't do it and wouldn't do it. The Lord Jesus was the perfect man. God himself taking on human flesh and then in that flesh, perfectly 
glorifying God, expressing God's perfect character. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter talks about the transfiguration. Peter was one of the ones who witnessed this. He says in 2 Peter 1 verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter here says this is not just a a good idea or even an example. This is not a philosophy or a way of life to follow. We saw the one. We saw the one whom God was perfectly pleased with. When God looked into his heart, not just his actions and words, God looked into his heart, all God could see was things that God was perfectly pleased with. And he did it on our behalf. He lived in such a way on our behalf as our representative as our substitute, so that God would look at him instead of us. When he would judge us, sending us either to hell for sin or to heaven for perfect righteousness. Dear friends, if your faith is in Christ, when the Lord looks to see where you go, he doesn't look at you. He looks at the one with whom he is perfectly well Pleased, he looks at Christ. Because Christ did this as the servant in place of the servant, God's people. It says the spirit of the Lord is upon him. We see that. This is actually reminds us of of, uh, Isaiah chapter 11, which we read a number of weeks ago now. Jesus never gave up his divine nature He's God, and then he adds a human nature. He never gave up his his divine nature, but he did add a real human nature. And it was a real weak human nature. It was a human nature that had the same purpose as ours, which is to glorify God and enjoy him, but to glorify God and enjoy him by relying on him. And so he did rely on God. He relied on the spirit of God. God's soul delighted in Christ, in everything about him. Not a mixture of good and bad, not in spite of anything, not overlooking anything, but with pure, pure delight. And he is your substitute. He's the one God looks at when he's judging you, if your faith is in him. Hopefully you can see the second point here as well in in these same verses. The Lord's servant gently and surely brings his law to all the nations. We can see this as well in the first four verses. So we see that there's a mission of the Messiah. The mission is the law of God to be received and followed in all the earth. We often don't think about the law of God as a good thing. But the law of God is lovely. And it is good, and it is pure. The Bible talks about the law of God reviving our soul. The law of God is good. It is for human flourishing. 
God didn't give his law to make life harder, but to show his character and how he has created the world. Jesus says, he's quoting from the Old Testament, that the law of God can be summarized as, as a definition of love of God and love of neighbor. A description of glorifying and enjoying God, it is for human flourishing. The law of God expresses God's character in a human. You might look at the Ten Commandments and say, if God ever became a human, what would he be like? The law of God expresses the character of God in a human, allowing us to to share in God's attributes and to enjoy God's attributes. It shows his character. Now, the Bible also says that the law of God is written into all of creation. This is written into the human heart, into conscience. You can know the character of God. You can know what is good and right based just looking at creation without the word of God. But the Bible tells us that we in our nature are so intent on suppressing the truth, in denying the truth about what is good and what is evil, what is pleasing to God, what is not. And so scripture clarifies, makes very clear what is also written in creation, what pleases the Lord and what the Lord hates. And scripture sort of reverses the suppression of the truth that we do in our hearts. When we deny what God loves, when we deny uh, things that God hates and say that they're actually lovely and beautiful. And so we see the Messiah's role would be to make people keepers of the law, actually to make people lovers of the law of God, and also to insist on it. You see the word justice there in verse 4. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice on the earth. So this is talking about establishing God's law, making people law lovers and law keepers, loving exposing God's character through through obeying him. But also that word justice means he insists on it. Not a suggestion. He insists that God's love is. This is part of his responsibility. And first of all, we're to see that his mission is gentle. He's not self-promoting. Did you see that? He's not going to cry aloud or lift up his voice. He's not self-promoting. He's not self-serving. He came to serve, not to be served. First, of course, he came to serve the Lord. God says, this is my servant. But he also came to seek and serve, seek and save the lost. He did miracles. He did identify himself as the Messiah, but the way he did it was not to elevate his status. He never did a miracle to make life better for him or to gain a crowd or to make people treat him better. His miracles, they were given by God and they were done to identify him as the Savior who would, in fact, rescue people. He did the miracles for the benefit of Israel for the benefit of those people so they could know who the Messiah was. Those miracles never actually benefited him. George read for us Matthew 12, verse 9 through 21, where Jesus heals a man. And then then the Pharisees start getting upset and they're like, we're going to kill this man. And then so he recedes off to a place because he has, he, it wasn't his time yet to die, and it was also not his time to take the crown. He would not be crowned until he died for the sin of his people. And so Jesus 
withdrew from there. We see this. If you have if your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 12, verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all. And listen, he ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill the pro- what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved is with whom my soul is well pleased. I will pour out my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or quiet cry aloud, nor, any, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and, his name, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. So he's not self-promoting. He's not denying that he's the Messiah. He's giving the evidence that he is. But when they tried to take him and make him king, make him by force, he refused. He was not there for self-promotion. He was there for the benefit of his people. It says he is gentle to the bruised and smoldering. This picture of a bruised reed, right? a bent reed is... You can't really strengthen that, can you? It's, it's got no strength in it as well. A smoldering wick, so you can think about something that was on fire and now it's you know, got red embers and it's almost out. It's kind of fire, but it's not. Very easy to snuff that out. A lot easier to snuff that out than it would be a forest fire. Right? If you're not gentle with it, you've got to be careful. You've got to nurse that flame. A little while ago, I went with my family to Bird's Hill and we tried to have a fire. And um, there was two kinds of bags of wood. One was, one was, there's more for the same price, and one was less for the same price. And if you know me, I obviously went for the one that had more in it for the same price. Well, it was obviously discounted for a reason. It was wet. So we tried for longer than I want to admit to, to get that thing going. And so any little bit of flame, you're nursing that flame, and it's just going out anyways, and I'm getting frustrated. So eventually I bought the expensive bag of wood. But you know what it's like to have this fire that's just, it's almost going out and you you really got to be very careful. You got to blow on it just a little bit, but not too much. And you got to nurse this. And this is what he's talking about with the kind of people he does not turn down. He's gentle. He's gentle to those who are these bruised reeds and smoldering wicks, to those who recognize that they are undeserving those who recognize that they are weak, those who renounce pride. And there's two kinds of pride that would be um, emphasized here. The first is the kind of I'll do it my way, Frank Sinatra way. I'll do it my way, thank you very much. I will be my own Lord. And that pride is, is you cannot expect Jesus to be gentle it's not you're, not, you're not admitting that you are a bruised reed or that you are weak. The other way is, I, I did it good enough. I will be my own savior. God will accept me based on how good I am. Yes, the first one denies God's law and say, I don't need to obey God's law. The second one is, I did God's law. I'm proud of how good I did it. And the idea here is that if you have those two attitudes, Christ will not be gentle with you. Those he is gentle with, those who he receives and saves are those who admit. Yes, God's law is law. He is Lord and I am not. But also, I haven't kept it. 
And I need God to be merciful with me. No pride. He is gentle, but he's also sure. He's also sure. He surely accomplishes these things. Do you notice it's, it's a promise? It will certainly happen. He will not cry aloud. I have put my servant. He will bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. This is a sure, sure thing. He will do it. He is faithful to do it. And the idea here is that you will not be able to bruise him enough to stop him from doing it. That phrase, I don't know if you have notes in, a note in your Bible on uh, the word discouraged in verse 4, it could also mean bruised. It's actually borrowing from the previous verse. You will not be able to bruise him enough to stop him. You will not be able to discourage him. No amount of pain, no amount of suffering will be able to stop him from accomplishing his purpose. He will accomplish this purpose. His ministry will not end without this being accomplished. He will certainly, certainly do this. He will establish the law of God. He will fulfill and he'll establish it on the earth everywhere. Recently was reading The Conquest of Canaan with Joshua as the leader of Israel. And it was, this was kind of like a, a, a foreshadowing of Christ's ministry to establish the law of God, not on the whole earth, but especially just in this land of Canaan. And Joshua had a great amount of success. The Lord used Joshua, and they they conquered the land of Canaan. But as you go through the story, and you, you realize that Joshua did live a long time, but he died before the mission was accomplished. Joshua was never able to say, it is finished. And then after Joshua died, three days later, He's still in the grave. And after Joshua died, Israel failed to complete that mission. And the law of God was never fully established in the land of Canaan. But we have a second Joshua whose death was not able to stop him from accomplishing this. Where the character and law of God has enjoyed the entire, not just the land of Canaan, but the entire world. At his first coming, the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. Remember, the servant, servant, he did it in our behalf. And he actually subdues his enemies without snuffing them out. He subdues his enemies without snuffing them out. If you have become a Christian, if you've come to Christ, you are an enemy who has been subdued. But he didn't do it by destroying you, by converting you by giving you a new heart, a new spirit, by making you a law lover, a God lover. His first coming, he fulfills the law and he also subdues enemies without snuffing them out. But in his second coming, he will be executing the justice of the law. Not only in Canaan, as Joshua was supposed to, but to the ends of the earth. All those who are not converted, all those who do not place their trust in him will be punished by Christ for their sins against him. Then we have this passage now turns in verse 5 to the Lord speaking to his servant. Let's read that. 
Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor praise, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Our third point is this. The Lord's servant is given as a covenant to the blind of all nations. He's given it as a, as a covenant. He's given it as a covenant. What does this mean? It means that he is given as, as the servant that you can be united to, and then his life counts as yours. The Bible speaks of marriage as a covenant where two become one, where, where two, two uh, people become one flesh, united together. And Jesus says that he is in a covenant with the church. All those who have faith in him, he's in covenant with. That means what happened to him counts as if it happens to you. That means the glory that belongs to him, you share in. It means that the sin which is yours, he takes. You are united. And this is how God saves, and he will save people from all nations. Not by just giving Jesus as an example, by giving him as a covenant. That you can be united to him as part of his body. And so then when it says, my servant, my servant accomplished the mission to glorify me. You can say, yet not I, but Christ in me. I share in what he did because I am united to him, bound in a covenant with him. He's given as a covenant, but he's given to the blind. He's given to the blind of all nations. People who walked in darkness, he gives light to. Again, this is another way of saying these, the bruised reed and the smoldering wick. These are, this is a humble thing to say, I cannot see. So he's only given as a covenant to those who say, I cannot see. I need to be saved. I haven't seen God's law properly and done it, and, and my heart doesn't see things properly. I don't see things the way God does. I don't see what is glorious as glorious, what is right as, as right, and what is evil as evil. I'm, I'm prone to seeing wicked things as good and desirable, and I'm prone to seeing desirable things, glorious things as uh, boring or annoying. And so this is a humble thing. It describes saving faith. We come humbly and say, I am blind, and I need you to save me. And so if you have that kind of faith, then Christ is given to you as a covenant. He fulfills the mission that you were supposed to, but were unable to do because you are joined with him. Not just as an example, but as a covenant that you are he is bound to you by an oath, by his oath. Our fourth point is this. The Lord does not share his glory, but shares the enjoyment of it. We see that in verse 8. In verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So he does not share his glory. It means the whole earth is his, and there are some people worshiping him, but he's not going to tolerate that forever. Uh, for, he will tolerate that, for sure. He will enjoy that. There are people who are not worshiping in those. Some people are, and most people aren't. 
There are people on the earth that are glorifying things that aren't God as God. He's not going to share his glory, not, not forever. He will hold on. He's patient, but one day he will say, no one gets any glory for being God except for me. But there's another way in which he says he will not share his glory, and that is people who say, I want God to save me. I want God to help me be saved. Where you say, I got saved and I did it, but God helped me. Where you're saved by your works. You say, well, Jesus saved me, but I'm saved because I obeyed him. I did a good job. You know, Jesus did 90% of it, but I did 10. 99, I'm pretty humble. 99 and I did one. No. That's a false faith. That's not true faith. You're not coming to him as a smoldering wick or a bruised reed or as a blind person. You are coming as somebody who wants to share the glory for you being saved. That God would get the glo- some glory, most of the glory even. But I want to hold on to something. I want to, I want to point to something that I have done. And God says, no, I will not share my glory but I will share my glory's enjoyment. I will share my glory's enjoyment. And imagine, imagine there is a person who is a, 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 a fantastic cyclist. And this person uh, is in a, a cycling race, Tour de France, and this person wins the Tour de France. But on the final leg, they fall and they have a, a huge rash on their arm, and they need a skin graft. This is a pretty detailed illustration. Follow it with me here. So this person's won the Tour de France, but on the final leg, they fall, and they need a big skin graft. And so they, they get off, uh, he, he, gets off, he gets off the ground onto his bicycle and goes across the finish line. He wins. So he's supposed to win, but beforehand, they want to do the, the medical treatment to him, so they take him to the hospital, and they give him a skin graft off of somebody who's dead. Pretty gruesome illustration. You're with me so far. Won the Tour de France, gets a skin graft, somebody else's skin on him, and now they do the ceremony, the, the victor's ceremony. That skin graft on that person's arm gets the glory of standing on the podium with the winner. Gets to enjoy the glory. But does that skin graft get any credit? Seems like a pretty gruesome and silly example, but you know, those, that's kind of the language that the Bible speaks of, that we are grafted into Christ. We are united to him. We don't get the credit for our salvation, but we enjoy all the glory that belongs to him. But it's a yet not I, but Christ kind of an enjoyment. So dear friends, we get to enjoy the glory of Christ. When God determines how we will be treated now and eternally, he will look not at us, but he will look at our representative. What does this man deserve? And that is what he will give to us. So God doesn't share his glory. We don't get half the credit. We get none of the credit, but we get all of the joy. Sorry for the gruesome illustration, but you won't be able to forget it. Our fifth point is this. The Lord's servant brings a new song of joy and long-awaited justice. Verse 10, sing to the Lord a new song. 
his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and all and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voices, that lift up their voice, the villages that Kibar inhabits. Let the, in, let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to God and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud for he shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time, I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation and I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools and I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know, in paths they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are things I do and I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods, thus far God's word. So we see here, part of the mission of the Messiah is to spread worship and joy on the earth. People from all nations enjoying what he has done. Because of course they share in it, because they're in covenant with him. Joy, the rescue of the blind. But you see also part of this song is that God's justice is finally accomplished. The that all, all sin against God's law is finally stopped. All sin against God's law is stopped, and all sin against God's law is punished. See, he is gentle to the bruised, or at least those who admit that they are, and to the blind, those who admit that they are. But he has violent destruction to the proud. This is a terrifying image of the Lord Jesus that seems to be opposite of him being gentle and lowly and not breaking a bruised reed. This is a terrifying. The the first part of this image is this mighty man, this warrior who's coming. And we see this also in the book of Revelation where he's he's covered in blood. He's going to be a violent, violent justice maker for those who do not turn to him in faith. When he returns... He has a passion for God's law and a passion for justice. He will punish all sins. So that's the first portion of this, this this violent man of war who executes justice. The second part makes it even more terrifying. There is this, a pregnant woman who is in labor about to give birth. And the illustration is this. She's been pregnant for a while. She has waited. She has been patient, but not forever. There will be a time when it comes for this patience to run out. And she has a very strong desire for the birth of that child. And as the months go on, that desire gets gets greater and greater. She has a strong desire for that birth of that child. But she is able to wait. But when the time comes, it will be a great relief. And it will be loud. The Bible does say that the Lord God is is slow to anger. Not that he doesn't get angry. It says he is slow to anger, but it also says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. We can wonder why evil exists, why injustices happen, why sin is rampant on the earth. And the answer the Bible tells us is not because God does not punish sin or he doesn't get angry, but that he is patient and he is holding back 
He's holding back so the gospel goes throughout the land and it subdues people without destroying them, right? By people turning to him in bruised reed kind of faith. But he will return to judge the living and the dead. He will come to punish those whose sin was not punished on him on the cross. And it will be a terrifying sight. We read this in the book of Revelation in chapter 19. We see him coming. And he comes to execute justice. And ultimately, he will send those who, whose sin has not been punished in him on the cross, he will send them to hell to receive their punishment forever. So the invitation and warning is to repent and believe. Come to him humbly. Admit your sin. He's not going to use it against you. You don't have to hide your sin so he'll treat you better. Admit you are weak and blind, that your eyes don't work properly. I see good things as evil and evil things as good. I, my heart loves things I shouldn't love and hates things that it shouldn't hate. He will not, he's not going to crush a bruised reed. He will not use your sin against you so you don't have to hide it. He knows already, friends. Confess your sin. Come to him as a weak person who's really not savable unless there is a Savior who lived in your place and died in your place. And then you can sing. Then you can sing longing for his return rather than dreading it because you know there is no condemnation for you. Not because there's no condemnation for sin. No, no, no. There's no condemnation for me because Christ already bore it in his body on the cross for me. Our sixth point we're going to find in, in uh, verse 18 to 25. And the, the point will be this. I hope you can see it. The people of God are a blind servant. Isaiah 42, 18 to 25. Hear you deaf. And look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one? Or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things but does not observe them. His ears are open and he doesn't hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted, and they are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become blunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. Who among you will give ear to this, who will attend and listen for, for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunders? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they will not walk, and they would not walk, in whose law they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger, and the might of battle, and set him on fire all around. But he didn't understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. The people of God are a blind servant. Israel was tempted to think of themselves as the ones who had light, who were strong, the ones who had wise eyes, and who, and who belonged to the Lord because they were good at his law. And the nations, they were the blind ones that needed the light. This is how they were tempted to see this, and God kills this idea. No, no, no. No, no, my, my Savior's coming not just to blind Gentiles. My Savior's coming to my blind people. Every single one of us is in need of 
Christ. There was unbelief when Jesus came. There was unbelief when Jesus came. We saw this in Matthew even today where the Pharisees, the leaders of God's, uh, leaders of, of God's people, the religious leaders of God's people, they saw Jesus do a miracle. What would have perfect eyes, holy eyes have done in response to that? Worshipped him. Honored him. What did they do? They made a plan to kill him. Simply because you are part of the church. Simply because you have the Bible. Because you are part of the, the family of God, or at least the outwardly the family of God, the church. Doesn't mean that this doesn't apply to you. You also need the ministry of Christ to, yes, forgive your sins, but also to give you new eyes to see. It is possible that you grew up in the church and that you think you've done pretty well at obeying the law of God and you think that is why God will accept you. But you are blind. You are blind and if that's why you think God will, uh, will uh, receive you, then you will in fact not be received by God, but you will go to hell. This is a message for people, even for people who have the Bible. That nobody is born seeing. We are all born blind and we all need to be rescued. Every single one of us needs to be rescued. How do we apply this? With ongoing humility, we realize that my eyes are not as sharp as the word of God. So wherever I see things differently or feel things differently than the word of God, part of this admitting that we are blind people who Christ has saved is saying, I, I just trust his eyes better than mine. He says this is holy. It's holy. He says that his design is beautiful and his law is beautiful. It, it is beautiful. He says this is, this is despicable. This is murder. This is grotesque. This is wicked. And it must be. Because I am not a, a seeing person who's come to Christ to be saved. I am a blind person, and his eyes are the only eyes I trust. Also, ongoing repentance. Each of us still has indwelling sin. Even after coming to Christ, we will be tempted to think of things as we used to think and see things as we used to think. And so it shouldn't surprise us when Luther's words come true, when the Christian life is one of continually needing to repent. So dear friends, lean on him for that. He's not going to take advantage of you for your sins. He's not going to use it against you when you come to him confessing your sins. He will use it for you and for your good. Our last point is this. Just a summary. We see this in verse 21. The point is this, the Lord delights to show his law through his servant. The Lord delights to show his law through his servant. Verse 21 says, the Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. Dear friends, it is one of the greatest things to belong to the Lord to show his glory to be able to enjoy his law. Because by enjoying his law, you're enjoying his character. He delights to show his law through his servant. 
He did that with the Lord Jesus. And for the Lord Jesus, for, for him to look at the Lord Jesus and see only perfection, only perfectly obeying God's law. But then when he sees the Lord Jesus, he applies that to us. If you're wondering if the Lord will hear your prayers, if he would be pleased to hear your prayers, dear friends, you look not to yourself, but you look to Christ. Would that man's prayers be answered? Then mine will be. And when you are facing death, which some of us might face even today, whether you're young or old, and you wonder, will the Lord receive me into glory? Will it be gentleness for me? Or will it be the picture of that violent justice bearer? What will it be? Well, would the Lord Jesus be received? Would he, would he be received into heaven? Well, he would. Well, then so too, dear friends, it would be your, if your faith is in Christ. And one day, one day when we meet the Lord, Christ's mission will be complete in us. And all he will see is holiness. Dear friends, if your faith is in Christ, he also promises to make you perfect. Not in this life. But when you see him face to face, either when you die or when he comes in glory, you will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye and your heart will be made perfect and pure so that the Lord, when he looks at you, he will only see things that delight him. You will be glorified. But that's not why he receives you. He receives you because of what he saw in Christ. But part of his gift to you is him giving also Christ's holiness to you. And this is something that those who have faith in Christ long for. We long for heaven not simply to be done with suffering. Certainly that's good to long for heaven to be freed from suffering. That's okay, that's good. That pleases God. But one of the marks of true faith is that one of the reasons we long for heaven is that we would enjoy only what is enjoyable and that we would love what God loves and that we would be freed from all of the sin that indwells us that we would no longer fall into sin and have to be corrected. We no longer have to repent. We no longer have to wrestle with sin. But all we would do, only what we would do, is glorify and enjoy God. Let's hope in that together, church. He who is faithful will do it. He cannot break his promises. His word is sure. Remember, it says he will not be stopped in accomplishing this. He who is faithful will do it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you uh, for the lovely mission of glorifying you by obeying your law. It is a beautiful, beautiful mission. And there was really no problem with the mission or your law, but the problem was with us and our sin. And so we are grateful that not only a beautiful mission you have given to your people, your servant, but you've also given us a perfect Savior who has fulfilled that mission perfectly in our place to obey you and love you and enjoy you and glorify you. 
We thank you that when you look at Christ, all you see is perfection in it, and all you see is what delights you. And then through unexplainable grace, you apply that to us. How firm our, our salvation is, because it is based on Christ's heart and his obedience. Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see how glorious you are and how good you are, that we would worship you. Give us eyes to see our guilt and our sins so that we might not trust in ourselves, but only trust in Jesus' name. Lord, give us confidence that you are gentle to those who come to you with humble faith so that we wouldn't be afraid of coming to you in repentance, in confessing our sin, admitting our weakness, our blindness, our guilt. Give us the, the, the strength to confidently come to you. Lord, I pray if there are people here, which there certainly are, who do not yet know Christ, who have not repented of their sin and recognized that they cannot save themselves, I pray that you would open their eyes. Give them faith to believe so that they would put their faith in Christ and so that you would treat them not as they deserve, but as Christ does. I pray that you would do this in Jesus' name.